Morning, guys. Morning, morning, morning. I have never in my life, this is bucket list material, never led worship and then preached. Uh, and we're doing two services today. Let's see how it goes. I, this is the, uh, the ministry equivalent of a marathon, so I'm, I'm pretty pumped. Um, hopefully there's some Gatorade somewhere along the way. Uh, listen, um, short notice does not mean unintentional. And I really felt the Lord speaking to me this morning at Panera Bread, of all places. Um, and if, if I have your permission, I'm going to preach today and, uh, and maybe go off script just a bit. Um, maybe get away from some of the, uh, uh, some of the uh, presentation kind of stuff we sometimes get hung up on as preachers. But I want to share something close to my heart. Um, and I want to share from my experience working at Anderson University, several of my students are here, uh, some of the stuff I've been able to work on in terms of biblical studies. Now, listen, most of you guys have real jobs. I read for a living. Um, the fact is, like, the fact is, there's a lot in the Bible that I think we sometimes miss, not because of our ignorance at all, but we've got other things going on. And so folks like me, um, our, my call, what I want to do is, is try to break the ground um, in the Word and just present the Word today and hopefully share some things that I've been learning about the text, about the Bible. And I really hope and trust and, um, and believe that, that the Lord's going to do some things um, today. Uh, today we're talking about the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's, let's just say a word of prayer and invite the Lord to come. Father, we thank you. Each person's here for a reason, Lord. Your word does not return empty, Father. Your word is alive. It's breathing, Father. And right now we just... Uh, there's, there's no preacher today, Father. There's, a, there's a, a word. You are the word, Lord. You are the preacher, Father. We ask that you bless the words you've given us in your text. And Lord, I pray for changed lives today. I pray for reorientation. I pray for transformation, not just in the folks listening, but in the one speaking as well. And we pray. Amen. Now, we've been growing a lot at Catalyst. If you're new here, you probably haven't seen. I'm only a year and a half in, honestly, and, and uh, I've seen a lot of growth, but we're only 10 years old, and the growth has been exponential. So many new things are happening, lots of new people joining the family, and every now and then, I think it's good for us to circle back to fundamentals. Even the best jazz musicians play their scales. Even the best basketball players do their drills. Anyone that's ever watched Steph Curry do his drills, the man is a natural, and yet he's earned that through fundamental work over and over. Now, there are people in the room, I would imagine, who are not Christians. And maybe you're just curious about this church stuff. What's the point? Well, today, I think what we're going to get at is the core of what we believe. But others of you, right? There are others who are Christians, and it's so easy for us to lose track of what we're about. We get into the Christian life, we get moving forward, and we often forget what it is that got us started in the first place. And this is, I really believe, the bedrock of it all. This is the bedrock of it all. If we're Christians, at the center of everything is the person of Jesus. Christians means, the Greek word, it's just uh, little Christs, essentially. What would it look like, this is where I'm going to start going off script, what would it look like if people called us by our real names? What would it look like if people put I-A-N-S after the things we actually love? You know, every fall I'd be a fantasy footballian, right? That's my religion, Right? And some of us are successians. Some of us are Biblians. Biblians, if we're honest. Some of us are Americanians, right? But actually, those of us who are in Christ have as our center Jesus. 
the person of Jesus. And today we're going to press in to what Jesus was all about. Two little verses near the beginning of the New Testament, actually in the earliest written gospel is Mark, the Gospel of Mark, at the very beginning of it, Mark 1, 14 and 15. These are, these are maybe some of the most, if you could distill the gospel down, you know, you boil it down on a kettle, and the, what you have left over, the, the center of it, the core of it are these two verses. I think we have them on the slide there. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now listen, that word good news is the same word as gospel. That is the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that the kingdom has come near. The kingdom has come near. That is good news. The gospel or the good news of Jesus is that the kingdom of God has come. Have you ever thought about this? This is again... One of those things that it's just worth thinking about. When you read this, I mean, the Bible literally says that Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel. Well, for many of us, the gospel has become strictly that Jesus died for our sins and bled for us so that we could be restored to the Father. Is there any way Jesus walked around Galilee saying, hey, remember how I died for your sins to restore you to the Father? No. And that's not to say that his death on the cross and his resurrection, obviously that's the, that's, that's, that's the core of our belief. That's, that's what we're after. That's how he fulfilled his promise. But actually, he said, the good news isn't that I've died and been resurrected for you. The good news is that God has decided to come near. And I am the first taste of that. That's good news for people, not just in this room, but in our world today. So we're going to dig into this idea of the kingdom today. And when I preach again in a couple of weeks, actually, uh, we'll, we're going to uh, lean into it again. In two weeks, we'll talk about how Jesus says the kingdom will grow, what it looks like, right? How, how it is. But our text today has us looking at what the kingdom itself is like. What is the kingdom life like, and how is it different from, from the other kingdoms that we're used to, Okay. Our text today is the first 16 verses of the book of, of the fifth chapter of Matthew, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you that aren't familiar with this particular text, this is the beginning of what is Jesus' famous, kind of most famous teaching, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we believe he, he took a group of, of local people who were desperate, honestly, the people that, that didn't have much else going on, and they, they heard about this guy, they came, and he went up a little bit on a hill. Uh, Dallas Willard calls it the discourse on a hill, because there ain't no mountains around there, right? So it's not like this powerful mountain where he's got a megaphone. He took him up on a grassy hill, and these people who are tired, broken, lonely, desperate, they come and sit around him, and, and at the head of him are 12 really ordinary, young teenage boys that were to his disciples. And Jesus begins unpacking the message of the kingdom. We're going to read this whole thing, the 16 verses, okay? Because I think it's important to let the word kind of breathe this morning. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak. Now, let me just paraphrase there, or let me just stop. Now, when it says, uh, after he sat down, his disciples came to him, we also know in the context of the previous uh, bit, all these people are around him as well. Okay, so the disciples come forward, but you have to imagine a group of people that he's about to call out, okay? Then he began to speak, and he taught them, and this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For the same way they persecuted prophets who were before you. You're among them. And then he says, and he looks out, and he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he said, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, there's a lot going on here. What I want to suggest is this. Whatever you might have heard about this particular passage, this is Christianity 101. This is the, this is the stuff. And so we're going to get into it this morning. All of this, I think, what Jesus is talking about is a description of what the kingdom is like. What the kingdom of God is like. Why is it good news that God's kingdom has come near? Why is it good news? Honestly, man, if you ask a lot of the people we bump shoulders into during the week, there's nothing good about our news. We argue we contort, we do mental gymnastics to try to turn it into good news for them, but it's not really apparent to them why this is good in the first place. And I have to wonder if that's because we've kind of lost our sight as to what makes it good in the first place. And so let's dig into that. First of all, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Fortunate are you. The Beatitudes of Jesus. Now this is interesting stuff. I grew up thinking, well, I want to be blessed by God. I better get myself in line. This is like some kind of mathematical equation, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, I better get poor in spirit. Blessed are the mournful. I better figure out something to be sad about. You know, right? Like, it's time. I mean, you, you know, read about poverty or, or, you know, sponsor a child. That'll help you mourn and then you'll be blessed, right? Blessed are these. And you think of it almost as a how-to, the good life. Okay? But these are not, I've come to realize, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, I just want you to know, this is, this is uh, something that, that a, a lot of people I respect have, have really drilled into my head, and it's changed the way I think about things. These are not meant to be prescriptive. This is not a fortune cookie way of being in the world. You're not blessed if you do these things. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. I think what Jesus is doing here is really different. When we read it as a how-to, we miss the point. But what Jesus is actually doing is talking about the kingdom. Now, Jesus did not invent the Beatitudes. He didn't. That's the craziest thing. Beatitudes were a form of speaking. So it'd be almost like us uh, potentially um, 
writing a haiku, or, I mean, I know all of you do that all week long, but, uh, you know, like, uh, our poetry, uh, you know, music lyrics, etc., but this is a style that was around. The blessed ours, these fortunate, this was part and parcel of their culture. So as he's looking out amongst these people, they have in mind, they've been told the blessed ours their whole life. They've been getting these their whole life. So in the Greek world, for instance, and this is where we get to nerd out just a little, and by we I mean me, uh, in the Greek world, we have uh, ancient Greek poetry, actually. One of the, the earliest poets uh, was talking about uh, these Beatitudes, and, and it had to do with professional sports, if you can believe it. Do you know that the professional athletes, the most important professional athletes of the Roman world were chariot racers? Like Jeff Gordon's ancestors, essentially. You know, like, <laughs> like these people were the stuff. You know, they were celebrities, actually celebrities. There's a, uh, a piece of poetry. One of these poets said, this, you are blessed, you, and he's talking to charioteers. You are blessed, you who have, even after great hardship, a memorial of the best words. That's how they would start some of their races. You are blessed. That's the same word. Blessed are you who race. Another of the Greek poets said this, Blessed is he who blithely winds out all of his days of life with no tears. Blessed is he who blithely winds out all his days of life with no tears. The point I want to make is this. In all of the Greek Beatitudes, and they were tons, and all of these people would have heard these sayings. What a stitch in time saves nine. The early bird gets the worm. Right? We have these in our heads too. They would have heard these. And for all of them, the main point was this. The successful people, the blessed people are the successful. They're the rich, right? They're the successful, the wealthy, the ones with good families, the ones who have it together that won't have stress, the ones that win races. These are the blesseds. The last people in the world that will be blessed are the ones Jesus is talking to. They've never, ever, ever been blessed before. Now think about this, it's not just the Greeks, the Jewish people had their own Beatitudes. In the Old Testament, we have records of Beatitudes all throughout it. In fact, Ecclesiastes, one of the blessings from Ecclesiastes says this, and this is the same exact language, how blessed is the husband of a really good wife. The number of his days will be doubled, right? A bad wife, I guess they they subtract, but a good wife, you get (laughs) doubled, doubled your days. Right? And everyone's looking around like, yeah. You know, like. But this is the kind of beatitude these people were used to. Jesus, though, he's flipping the script. And that's important to notice. The Greeks and the Jews both say that it's the fortunate ones. The fortunate ones are the successful ones. Now, the Greeks, for sure, it's all about money and and wealth, and, and your, your clout, your reputation, all these things. And the Hebrews, yeah, they bring God into it, right? Blessed is he who follows God, and, and, and he'll be blessed with many sheep, and, and he'll have a good wife, and his days will be long, etc., etc., etc. But you know who never got blessed? What about you who aren't successful? What about you who are single? What about you who have seen tragedy? who have seen marriages fall apart. And that's the crowd Jesus is talking to. Jesus looks around at the poor in spirit, at the mourning, at the meek, and for the first time in the history of Beatitudes, the first time ever, he says it's the broken who are blessed. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. 
It's not about getting yourself right so you can be blessed. That's just a new kind of law, right? And that's what we do. We can't help it. We turn everything into a law and a rule because it's safer. What Jesus is saying is not be mournful so that you can be blessed. He's looking at people who are mourning and saying, you're blessed. Your time has come. I see you. Welcome home. Listen, that's our job as a church, but we'll get to that later. Now, lest you think I'm just taking poetic license by telling you it's flipped, this whole chapter, this whole area, it's just, I mean, it's right there. I'm telling you, once you see what's going on here, it will mess you up because Jesus is flipping the script over and over. And, if, and in, case, in case, you're, you know, in case his, 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 his listeners were slow, he just does it again and again and again. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. The next thing he talks about is uh, the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, the salt of the earth, what is, what is he saying? Now, that's a, that's a saying back in the day, and even now we say it, right? And, and you've probably heard uh, about the, uh, you know, we use salt for flavor. I mean, I'm, a, I'm addicted, I'm not going to lie. I, this, this tells you a lot about me, A, that I'm a bachelor, B, that I'm pathetic when it comes to nutrition, but I, I keep a salt shaker on my coffee table just because it's easier, that's where I eat. I just can reach and grab it, and I salt everything. Before I taste it, I salt it. Salt is a seasoning for us. But in the ancient world, a guy named Pliny the Elder, uh, he was a, a naturalist, one of the first horticulturalists. Those of you that are gardeners, this is a, a good friend of yours, maybe if you don't even know him. But Pliny talks about salt, and he talks about its use as a preservative. Back in the day, before refrigerators and freezers, you would salt meat, and the salt would keep the, the meat inside from spoiling. You could, you could butcher a whole animal and keep it, kind of... Um, Sounds disgusting to me, but it's like primitive jerky, apparently. You know, you, you have it, and you can eat it that way. That's what salt's for, right? It's a preservative. And maybe you've heard that. When you read this passage, you think, oh, we're supposed to preserve the earth, right? That's one thing. Uh, seasoning, they, they did use it a little bit for seasoning. Most people could not afford salt for seasoning. Man, I, I'll tell you what. It's funny how, how common salt is for me now, but I was in a... Um, Weirdly, I was in Croatia a few years ago, and um, because I'm a nerd and nerds do weird things on vacation, they had a salt flat you could visit and tour. And I thought, who needs the beach? Let's hit the salt flat, you know? <laughs> so me and, me and some friends, we went to the salt flat, and I noticed, listen, what they used to have to do to get salt, they would dig these, these shallow trenches along the seaside, and, and the tide would come in, and they would trap that water, and then the sun would beat down on it, Okay? And they call it the flor de sal, the, uh, the flower crystal. The salt would be, as the water evaporated, the, the, the best salt gets to the top. And then a, a man who's been trained for generations, his father did it, his father's father did it. They would take this, this special rake kind of thing, and they would, they would rake the flor de sal off the top. And they would spend their, their entire day for a handful of salt. And then it would, it would uh, evaporate further and more common salt would form. And finally, you have salt on the bottom as though all the water's gone, and they would rake that up, and that's how you got salt. It was a heavily, heavily labor-intensive kind of job. So most people couldn't afford salt for their eggs, right? They couldn't do that. It really isn't about flavoring that Jesus is talking about, I don't think. This is where it gets a little crazy. What Pliny says salt was mostly used for was as money. You ever heard that? I know there's a few veterans in the room. Do you know what a soldier literally means? The word soldier comes from the uh, Latin, actually, soldare. And that's, again, forgive me, but let's talk about this. 
Saldare, soldier, soldier, saldare, two words, sal, salt. Dare means to give. A soldier is someone who receives salt, to give salt. They would pay sometimes Roman soldiers with salt. It was so valuable. That's why, for instance, when we say someone's not worth their salt, that's what we're talking about. And actually the word salary, which I imagine many of you you depend on, that is, it literally means salt. It's a salt giving, a salt. Everything we do is built around salt, and we don't even know it. Salt in the ancient world was a currency that was spent. What does that do for us here? Well, salt was the currency that kept the Roman Empire going. Without their salt, the soldiers rebel. Without their salt, the soldiers go home. Without soldiers, the empire falls apart. Salt was the thing spent to keep the thing going. It was the lifeblood of the Roman Empire. What would it mean then for Jesus to say that you, and he's talking to these bedraggled, lonely, little people. He's talking to us. What would it look like for him to say that you are the salt of the earth? You're not here to preserve the earth. You're not even here to season it. You are the currency of the kingdom. You are the thing that keeps the kingdom going, the lifeblood of the kingdom, and the only way that works is by being spent. You are God's walking around money. You are God's pocket change. Oof. That's a different kind of thing. We are the most valuable things in the kingdom of heaven. And not just those of us that have jobs. Jesus is talking, remember, to the weak, the meek, the hungry, the broken, the mourning. They're God's gold. That's good news. Isn't it? Yeah, right? All right. In case you're still not convinced, let's go on. City on a hill. Jesus says, you're the city on a hill. Man, this is so interesting to me, too. The city on a hill. Now, anyone listening at that time would have known about the city on a hill. There's two of them, actually. There's two hills that matter in the ancient world for these Jewish listeners. One is just down the road. It's called Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion, there's a city called Jerusalem. That's the city on a hill. That's the city on a hill. Everybody knows that. Okay? They are the city on a hill. And at Jerusalem was the temple. And out of the temple came, really, the the temple functioned as the center of the world in terms of the spiritual world. That was the center of spiritual life. That was the place around which your religion oriented. That was the place you went to for your faith. This was the center of the religious world. People looked to that city on a hill, Jerusalem, for hope. For hope. Spiritual hope. If you are mourning, if you are meek, if you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you look to Jerusalem, where the Pharisees, right, will give you rules and will give you hope for restoration. But that's not the only city. The second city was further away, but perhaps more central to their lives. You could not go get a cup of Starbucks in the ancient world You couldn't get your morning coffee without bumping into a Roman soldier. Now, these Roman soldiers occupied everything. The empire was built on these guys who made money, their salt, 
They've been given their salt, and they kept everyone in line. And they made sure your tax money went to that other city on a hill. Rome, the famous city on seven hills. If you don't know much about history, well, here we go. Now, the ancient legend of Rome, their origins say that the brothers Romulus and Remus, two little boys, were in a cave on the largest of the hills, Palantine Hill, and a she-wolf, it's getting crazy, I know, the, the first time anyone's ever said she-wolf in a sermon, but a she-wolf <laughs> comes and nurses Romulus and Remus, and the Roman Republic begins on that hill. And then on Palantine Hill, and you've you ever been there, that's where the forum is, that's where all the laws were, that's where the palaces were. This was the center of power in the Roman world. This was the place around which the material world oriented itself. This was the place your taxes went, and when your taxes went, the Caesar would say, by the way, you need to tell these guys there's a new law. And they would come back from Rome and say, here's how you're going to live. You did everything by the permission of the Caesar. They knew about hills, and they knew about cities on hills. One was the spiritual center, the other was the material center, the secular center. Their lives were governed by cities on hills, and people, Caesar in one, the Pharisees in another, who governed the spiritual and the secular realm. But Jesus says, forget about Rome and Jerusalem for a second. Forget about it. This hill, this little hill, Sermon on the Mount, forget about it. This little hill that no one knows about, doesn't even have a name. It'll be forgotten. There's grass and weeds and rocks, and the citizens of this hill are a bunch of messed up, broken people. And Jesus looks out at them and says, remember Rome? They won't last. Remember Jerusalem? It won't last. You are the city on a hill. It's to you this hill, and you messed up people that the world will look to. You are the city that will last. And he was right, wasn't he? Every single person in here today, Christian or not, has come here because of a group of ragtag, broken people who actually believed what Jesus said. Rome's gone. The temple in Jerusalem is now a wall that people put slips of paper in to pray. But the kingdom of God, that city on a hill stands. That's amazing. That's good news. I love this. One more thing. The light of the world. I mean, Jesus, he's, not, he's just showing off now. Right? He just keeps hitting them. I, I, this is the one that blew my mind most as I did the research a few years back, it just, again, it started messing with my life. This isn't just academic stuff, by the way. This puts a call on you. It demands a response. When you know what's going on, you've got to either say yes or no to it. It's really hard. But this is what was going on. This is the light of the world. I could not believe this, but Jesus actually wasn't making this up. He wasn't the first to say, you are the light of the world. Actually, this goes back further. In 63 AD, a Roman orator, a Stoic by the name of Cicero, gave a famous speech in the Roman Forum. Now, he was giving a speech about this guy named Catiline. And Catiline was another uh, aristocrat in Rome, and he had tried to start a rebellion. And he got the people involved with him, and he got all this popular support, and he was coming to take over power. And Cicero was serving as one of the governors at the time, and he was the one that sniffed it out and put it down. 
And could they had they had Catalina in chains. Okay? And Cicero is saying, listen, we've got to make an example of this guy. And a lot of the other rich aristocrats are saying, hey, listen, he's one of us. Let's give him a break. Let's, let's put him into exile. Let's send him away, something. But let's not kill him. That seems a little barbaric. A little, that, that escalates a little quickly, right? And Cicero says, no, you don't know what's at stake here. This isn't about our power. This is not about our power. This is a bigger thing. And this is what Cicero said. He said it was Rome around which the, the, the world revolved. The security of Rome was the security of the world. He said this, Rome, Rome is the light of the world and the citadel of the nations. One of the famous speeches in world history, Cicero says this 90 years before Jesus. Now Jesus, too often we think of Jesus as a wandering mystic who kind of stumbled his way around Palestine giving cool sayings, fortune cookie sayings, and healing people, and maybe he wasn't even sure what he thought. But, but one thing I, I'm convinced by is Jesus was pretty smart. He knew things, and he paid attention. He knew culture. He took time for culture, and there's no doubt in my mind that he'd read, or at least heard some Cicero. It isn't the Romans who will bring light to the world. Their security and their peace was cheap, and it wouldn't last. Cicero was wrong. Of course, the other familiar light of the world is Israel. The first audience would have known this. That's, he's preaching to the choir. The Hebrew scriptures contain a great many references to Israel as light. In Psalm 49, for instance, the Lord says of Israel, I will make you a light unto the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so all the people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, begin to think, yeah, we're doing that. In fact, we've got to fight Rome to make sure that our light gets out past theirs. We've got the better light. How's that working out for them? And how's religion working out for you? How light is that light? How bright is it? The light of the Pharisees and the religious rulers with their promises that perfection and rules would bring about light to the world it was false hope, and it always would be. No, it's the weak and the mourning and the persecuted, those that are blessed in the kingdom of God who are meant to be the light of the world. Blessed are you. You are the salt of the earth. You're the city on a hill. You're the light of the world. Not Rome. Not Jerusalem, not the pretty, not the put together, not those who have no struggle, not those who have it all together, not at all. It's the weak, the mourning, and the persecuted. So what? So what? A couple conclusions and then I'll close. The first is this, to those of you who are hurting. And honestly, anyone who has to live in Indiana in January and February ought to be hurting by now. It's, it's bleak, right? To those of you that are hurting, and I imagine that's every single person in the room in some way, whether you might be healthy, you might be making good, good money, but someone in your life is, is, is broken and it's, it's weighing on your spirit, on your heart. If you don't feel like you're on top, if you feel a little worn down, 
To you, Jesus says, you're right where I want you. You're right where I want you. You haven't lost your way. Don't listen to the people that say you have. You're right where I want you. That is good news. Then there's a group of people, I think, as I was preparing, I just felt like God laid on my heart. People who have become Christians, but wonder what's next. All right, I believe, right? What do I do? What's the point? Is it coming to church on a Sunday morning? I mean, yeah, we have good coffee and there's some decent people here, but like, is that really worth it? What are we doing? Maybe you've come to believe in Jesus and you're ready to take the next step into what Nate talked about, discipleship. One of the most important things here at our church. Listen, Matthew 5 is good news because it gives you direction and meaning for your life. I want to unpack that for one second before I move forward and close. Um, one thing we talk about a lot in uh, the history that I studied over in Scotland is this. In, the, uh, the, um, in our contemporary world, we're motivated by things a little bit different than they were in 1500, for, for instance, or in the, the ancient times, really, before the modern world. Now, ancient people were motivated by a fear of condemnation. The thing that really got them to do things, the thing that really caused them to lose sleep at night was a fear that they would be condemned by a king or a pope or by God himself. And they lived in the fear, and so they acted out of a need to make sure they're not condemned. That's what this world looked like. But you know what's interesting? Somewhere around, maybe it was 1700, maybe it was 1960. For different people, it's different eras, I suppose. But sometime around the way, we've shifted. And we're no longer living in a culture that's motivated by a fear of condemnation. That's why when we tell people you're living wrong or you're sinning, etc., they're like, all right. That doesn't bring people to their knees anymore. You know what, what motivates, one of the philosophers I read says this, what motivates people, our friends, is a fear of meaninglessness. That's why we insta our lunch. If we don't let other people see it, it didn't happen, it didn't mean anything. We're most afraid of dying alone and without meaning. Forget the condemnation. What keeps us up at night is that we don't matter and that our lives mean nothing. Oof. I think what the world around us needs more than anything else is meaning, is a reason to live, is a direction towards which they can orient their lives, something to give them purpose. Otherwise, it's just a chase, really, right? A chase for pleasure and a chase for the avoidance of pain. Our goal as Christians has to change, and the church has to do a better job of expressing this. The goal of the Christian life is not you being perfect. The goal of the Christian life is not you living out the law better than anyone has before. The goal of life as a Christian is not looking to Jerusalem for our hope. And it's surely not looking to Rome or Hollywood or Nashville or Washington, D.C., The goal, the meaning of it all is right here. You can give up on everything else and now you have a life plan. At least I do. This, is, this has changed my life. You are supposed to give other people hope. You are the city on a hill. 
Not Rome, not Jerusalem. You people, you bedraggled lot. You are supposed to shine. You are the light of the world. And you are supposed to be spent. You are the salt of the earth. This is how we live out our faith. We give hope, we shine, we get spent. You can spend the rest of your life on those three things and you never run out. That's our goal, that's our direction, that's our point, our purpose, that's the meaning undergirding our lives. And when we ask other people to become Christians, we're asking them to join us in that. And there's not a single person that we've ever met who's too broken or doesn't measure up. This is how we change the world. Worship team, you want to come on up? I guess I'm talking to myself, actually. (laughs) Really. (laughs) We're here. Uh, So I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We've heard the word today. I just want us to pray, um, ask the Lord to really plant that seed deeper and and grow roots in our lives. Um, For those of you that are um, wondering what to do next, it's no fun telling people that they should make changes in their life and and look for meaning and reorient their lives away from from Hollywood or Rome or or Jerusalem or or whatever that looks like for you and and not give people an option in how to do that. Listen, we we want you to to think about using our area over here, even as we're singing. Worship God, yes, sing sing to God if if that's what you want to do. But if you feel like you want to um, pray, if you feel like there's something the Lord needs to hear from you or you want to bring to the Lord, if you've been prompted by anything today, I want to encourage you to go over to the prayer wall and just fill out um, one of the cards. There are instructions on where to put them over there, but I mean, it's not that hard. Grab a piece of paper, write something, and and put it in wherever you want. It's okay. You can also light a candle over there um, as just a way of saying, God, I hear you. And maybe that light, the candle can kind of symbolize a step or a commitment that you're going to be that in a dark world this week. So let's just pray even now. Father, thank you for what you're doing. In the room, Lord, thank you for um, your kindness. Thank you that you brought each person here, Father. Thank you that uh, you took the time, Lord, not to, uh, you didn't spend your time with the, 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 the successful from the world standpoint. Lord, you took a bunch of people who honestly weren't any better than us, in some cases were worse off than us, and you made them blessed. You gave them meaning and value, Father. And let us do the same for those around us, Father. And for those that that don't feel like they have value or meaning today, Lord, we bless them today. The Lord just says, blessed are you, unemployed. Blessed are you who are lonely. Blessed are you whose kids won't call. Blessed are you who are afraid. Blessed, blessed, blessed. You belong. Amen and amen.